0: Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep practical wisdom.
1: Last week, I spoke about the relationship between dukkha and non-self, anatta, how they relate to one another, the ungovernability of things, relating to the sometimes afflictive nature of the physical elements, the whole process of aging, decay, death. Tonight I'd like to discuss aspects of the second foundation of mindfulness, that is mindfulness of feelings. In Pali, it's Vedana. The Buddha placed a tremendous emphasis on this particular way of establishing mindfulness. Mindfulness of feeling, of Vedana, plays a critical role in understanding both how our lives are unfolding with regard to suffering and happiness. But it also plays a critical role on the path to awakening. Now, in English, the word feeling can have a wide range of meanings. One point I looked it up just in the, the dictionary. Feeling had 13 different usages. You know, it can mean. I feel a sensation. I feel this way about something. I have a feeling that something is going to happen. There's a wide range of meanings, but in Buddhism it has a very specific meaning, and I think you're all familiar with it. Vedna, as it's used in the Buddhist teachings, refers very specifically to the taste we have of an experience. That is, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And every experience we have through all the six sense doors, the mind included, with every sight or sound or smell or taste or sensation in the body or mind object, we experience it as being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When we're mindful of these feeling tones, then it begins to decondition our habitual, very deeply habituated tendency to grasp at the pleasant, to have aversion for the unpleasant, and to space out or be deluded about what's neutral. And the Buddha's instructions in the Sutta, in the Satipatthana Sutta, are extremely simple in terms of how to be mindful of these feelings. It's so simple, we generally just overlook it. He said, when feeling a pleasant feeling, or an unpleasant one, or a neutral one, one knows, I'm feeling a pleasant feeling. I'm feeling an unpleasant feeling. I'm feeling a neutral feeling. Did you get that? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it, couldn't, it couldn't be more simple. As these feelings arise, the instruction is to know, I'm feeling this is pleasant, I'm feeling this is unpleasant, I'm feeling this as neutral. But then the Buddha went on in the sutta to further delineate these three types of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in quite an unexpected way. And it's this further delineation which opens us to a deeper understanding of suffering and of happiness in our lives. So he further divides these three types of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, into worldly ones and unworldly ones, or spiritual ones. So in this delineation, mindfulness of feelings goes beyond its simple affect, that is, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It also points us to look at the origin of these feelings. What's the genesis of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings? What do they arise from? This further delineation, when we look a little deeper at feelings, not simply knowing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, but look further, OK, what are they based on? This has tremendous implications uh, for our lives. So as we might expect, the Buddha talked of worldly feelings arising from contact with sense objects. Just the ordinary sense object, which I mentioned. Sight, sounds, smells, taste, sensations, mind objects. We enjoy a good meal. We feel kind of a soft, a soft touch. So there arises a pleasant, worldly feeling. Right? It's a pleasant feeling based on a sense contact. Or maybe we feel a painful sensation in the body or a really unpleasant smell, or a jarring sound. So that's an unpleasant, worldly feeling. Right? Something unpleasant that's based on a sense contact. Or there's just an ordinary sight as we're walking around and we're just seeing things, and it's neither <coughs> particularly pleasant or unpleasant. So this is a worldly, neutral feeling. So this is ordinary. This is just the ordinary play of our lives. Unworldly feelings are something quite different. These are feelings, again pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that are not particularly arising based on the sense contact, but these unworldly feelings arise based on renunciation. So this takes a little exploration to understand what this means and what the implication is in Western culture, for many of us, the idea of renunciation doesn't particularly inspire us. you know it's not a cultural value you know it's <laughs> I mean, with all the with all the email spam, do you get? You get do you ever get a message? Renounce? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. But I've gotten lots of email spam. You know, for this or that. Increase your desire. You know, as if somehow that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, because, in our conventional way of understanding things, we we often think of renunciation. Or we we think about it as a kind of deprivation. Something that might, in the end, be good for us, but which we don't particularly want or enjoy in the moment. But there's another way of understanding renunciation and really getting to the heart of what the experience of it is like, not what our thoughts about it are. And the other way of understanding renunciation is really understanding it as non-addictiveness, where the mind is not addicted to different pleasures of the senses. So from this perspective, renunciation holds out the possibility of happiness now, because I think we can all at least have a sense, an intuitive sense, that the mind is a lot freer and happier when it's not addicted to whatever it might be. The less addicted we are to the seductions of the sense pleasures, the less commotion there is in the mind. You know, our minds have a chance to settle, to come to a place of ease. in this non-addictiveness, which is really another word for renunciation, in this non-addictive mind, the mind rests much more naturally in a place of spaciousness, spaciousness, of openness, of ease. Just think for a moment what your mind would be like if it wanted everything that was advertised on TV. You know, with every commercial that came on, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that. It would be like a hell realm. You know, just that, that energy of wanting, of grasping, of desire, the relentlessness of it, and the inability to, to finally satisfy all of it. And so, just, you know, in that simple example, we could say, oh, I think it's, it's why we often mute the commercials. You know, it's just so nice not to hear it and to have the mind be at rest. So I think this is what the Buddha meant when he said, what the world calls happiness, I call suffering. And what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. You know, the world thinks, yes, let me enjoy every possible sense pleasure. And generally for the world, that's happiness. That's what the Buddha calls suffering. And what the world would call suffering by coming to the forest refuge, not speaking to anybody, (laughs) being in silence, (laughs) you know, just all the renunciations that you have here. What the world would call suffering, wiser ones call happiness. The distinction and the differentiation that the Buddha makes between worldly feelings and unworldly feelings. That is, feelings associated with sense objects or feelings associated with renunciation. When we can begin to see that distinction, not, not theoretically, you know, not intellectually, but we're really experiencing that distinction in our practice, in our lives... It opens up much greater subtleties of understanding about our lives, about the path, about the choices we make. We get a substantially different understanding of what constitutes happiness. So this is not an insignificant part of the teachings. But it also runs counter to our general conditioning, because almost every message we get throughout our lives is that happiness comes from accumulating more and more sense pleasures. This is generally where people look for happiness. You know, they want to be in pleasant surroundings and have pleasant food and have pleasant feelings in the body. So this is is just the normal way most people live. And of course, these sense pleasures do bring a kind of happiness. So the Buddha doesn't deny that. And we know that from our experience, that when we have different pleasant sense experience, pleasant worldly feelings, we do feel happy for a time. The problem is that these kind of sense pleasures, these kind of pleasant, worldly feelings, also contain within them hidden dangers. And we we might call it the downside of the pleasures. So they do bring happiness, and we know that. This is just our common experience. But how often are we really examining our experience carefully enough to investigate the downside, to even be aware that the downside is there? So just as a few examples of some of the hidden dangers that we either don't think about or we overlook. I mean, one very obvious example is that sometimes the pleasure itself, the sense pleasure itself, is ultimately harmful. And we see this in dangerous addictions, you know, whether it's to alcohol or tobacco, to drugs, you know, to sex, to fame, to wealth. Like Sometimes these addictions, when they're powerful addictions, we can see in, in people's lives how harmful they can be. So it's one hidden danger. Another one which we all have some experience of, but perhaps it's lessened as our wisdom grows, is that if we become attached to these pleasant worldly feelings, you know, from any of the pleasant sense contacts that we have the more attached we are to them, and the more we believe that that's where happiness resides, then the more we suffer when they change. And of course, they always do. So it's another another hidden danger, the danger of attachment and the subsequent suffering that comes. A third hidden danger, which I think usually goes unnoticed, but perhaps is the most dangerous aspect of all. And that is when we're not mindful of these worldly pleasant feelings, which are based on sense contact, different sense pleasures, we are unconsciously strengthening the power of desire and wanting in the mind. Every time we go for another one and go for another one and go for another one, thinking they're going to bring us some kind of lasting happiness, what we're doing in that process is strengthening the very habit of desire, of wanting. Because the more we do something, the more likely it is that we do it again. You know, and so unknowingly, we may be strengthening this habit pattern of desire and of wanting. So in the teachings on unworldly feelings, the Buddha is pointing out a very different kind of happiness a very different kind of pleasure. In the unworldly pleasant feelings, they're still pleasant feelings. But they're not based on sense contact. They're based on renunciation. The Buddha is saying, with these kinds of pleasures, of pleasant feelings, there is no hidden danger. There is no downside. these unworldly pleasant feelings actually become the basis for our whole spiritual path, become the basis for our awakening. And the Bodhisattva, before his enlightenment, his understanding of this distinction between pleasant worldly feelings and pleasant unworldly feelings, it opened the pathway towards enlightenment for him. So i just read, this is is from the text, from the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle end sayings. This is the Buddha speaking. Whatever recluses or Brahmins in the past, present, or future, he's reflecting now on his years of uh, self-mortification have experienced painful, racking, piercing feelings due to exertion. This is the utmost. This There is none beyond this. But by this racking practice of austerities, I have not attained any distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. <clears throat> Could there be another path to enlightenment? Okay, so he tried the self-mortification and realized that didn't work. And then, as I'm sure you all Recall, He remembered as a young child sitting under a rose apple tree while his father was doing some kind of <coughs> uh, plowing ceremony in the kingdom. So he c- I considered, I recall that when my father, the Sakyan was occupied while I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon and abided in the first jhana. Which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Could this be the path to enlightenment? Then, following on that memory, came the realization that is the path to enlightenment. And this is this next sentence, I think, is really the key point here. I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do? with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. I thought I am not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states." So the Buddha's pointing out a whole realm of experience of pleasure based on these unworldly pleasant feelings secluded from unwholesome states. And he saw yes, it's through this kind of happiness that the whole path unfolds. So there's an important message for us here about the role of joy and happiness on our path. You know, Very often in hearing the teachings, there's so much emphasis placed, rightfully, on the great truth of dukkha you know, and its causes on the need for right effort, for heroic effort at times, emphasis on the danger of continually indulging sense, desire, that it's sometimes easy as we're engaged in the path and the practice, I think it's easy to overlook that essentially this is a path of happiness and increasing happiness and leading onward to happiness. So I'll just repeat that. <laughs> this is a path of happiness, <laughs> and this is the point of it. <laughs> so it's easy to forget that at times in the midst of one's particular struggles. One discourse describes one of the kings from the Buddhist times, King, King Pasanadi, who himself was, he was. Uh, Quite indulgent of sense pleasures, he wasn't. He wasn't one of the Buddha's most uh, fervent disciples. Uh, but one time he, he visited the Buddha and he described what he saw. Okay, so he was visiting the Buddha in the, you know the order of monks and nuns. But here yeah. I see bhikkhus smiling and cheerful, sincerely joyful, plainly delighting, their faculties fresh looking at ease, unruffled, subsisting on what others give, abiding with a mind aloof as a wild deer's. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful characterization of kind of the simplicity and the joy and the ease of people who are practicing not for worldly sense pleasures, for worldly pleasant feelings, but who are enjoying the happiness of the unworldly pleasant feelings. And after his enlightenment, the Buddha declared of himself that he is one who dwells in happiness. So beginning to get a sense of the distinction between these two kinds of feelings, worldly and unworldly, they have far-reaching ramifications in terms of the conditioning in our minds, the conditioning of our actions, and the choices we make in our lives. In the time of the Buddha, there was a very wealthy merchant named Visaka. He lived in the ancient city of Rajagaha. And both he and his wife had realized the third stage of enlightenment, Anagami, non-returner. So they were very adept practitioners. And soon after they had attained that level, his wife ordained and became the the nun Dhammadinna. And she quickly became an Arhant. And the Buddha declared her to be the foremost nun in expounding the Dhamma. So at one point, Visaka, her former husband, who was still a layman, he went to the now nun, Dhammadinna, with a series of questions. So Visaka asks, the husband asks, what habitual tendencies underlie pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral ones. So Dhammadina replies, as we might expect, desire or lust is the underlying tendency or is conditioned by pleasant feeling, aversion is the underlying tendency, conditioned by unpleasant feeling, and delusion is the underlying tendency regarding neutral feeling. So just think for a moment. What's important in hearing these teachings, it's so easy to just hear it on a conceptual, intellectual level. But that's not how the Buddha is, that's not the point of the teachings. So it's always to hear this and reflect back, what is my experience of this? I'd use the words to really look at your experience. So see for yourself, or reflect for yourself, when pleasant feelings come, do you ever experience desire for them, wanting them to continue? When there's painful feelings, do you experience the dislike, the aversion, the resistance, you know, or the, the delusion, the spacing out of neutral ones? And so he's, he's really talking about our experience. Okay, so this is what we would expect, dhamma Dini's reply. You know, we, we get attached to pleasant feeling, we resist unpleasant ones, we deluded about neutral ones. And just as a reminder about the importance of understanding this conditioning, the Buddha said that without abandoning these underlying tendencies, without abandoning desire for the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant and ignorance of the neutral, without abandoning these tendencies, liberation is impossible. So this is a tremendous charge to us, right? And it, it really frames what our practice is about. We're practicing deconditioning these tendencies because that's what frees the mind. Okay, these teachings, although they're challenging, you know, for our practice and our lives, these are teachings we're all familiar with. But then Visaka, the husband, former husband, goes on to ask the nun another further probing question. And this is the one that opens up this whole other realm of unworldly feelings. He said, Lady Dhammadina, do these habitual tendencies of desire, of aversion, of delusion underlie all pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings? Okay, so he's asking. With every feeling that arises, are these the underlying tendencies for all of them? She replies, these habitual tendencies do not underlie all feelings. They do not have to be abandoned with regard to all feelings. Okay, we'll talk a little further about this. But when the Buddha heard of her reply, said he approved this reply, saying, "Dmadina is wise. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you in just the same way. So he's giving his seal of approval to this answer. So what Dhammadina was pointing out was just this distinction between different kinds of feelings between... The feelings that we have, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, based on sense contact, the difference between those, and the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings based on renunciation. Okay, (laughs) so this, this sets the framework, hopefully, of understanding. The question for us, how do we apply these teachings? How do we apply them in our practice, how do we apply them in our lives? The challenge for us is that as we're living our lives in the world, we find ourselves engaged with both kinds of feelings. A lot of worldly feelings are coming up because we have all of this sense contact. And there are times when unworldly feelings arise. So it's just interesting to start paying attention to the difference. Generally, in our lives, we go about seeking different sense enjoyments. And this is part of what our life is, especially as lay people living in the world. Even though we know, and I think all of us do, we know their limitations, and we know some of their downsides, but still this is a big part of our lives, just the enjoyment of pleasant experience, pleasant sense experience. And we know, just in the ordinary course of our lives, that we do have aversion to unpleasant situations, to unpleasant sense experience, even though we know that that aversion or resistance just causes more suffering. So we have some wisdom about it all, but still, these are very strongly conditioned habit patterns. And we all partake of this. It's just our normal lives. So on retreat and in our lives, we want to pay attention both to the sense contact and also our reactions to them. So we begin to get more mindful You know, this sense pleasure. And we see the desire. This unpleasant sense experience, we see the aversion. So a big part of our practice is becoming mindful of these worldly feelings and the reactions they condition. But we can also practice recognizing the unworldly feelings. And this is something that I think we don't often do. And that's why I wanted to emphasize it tonight, because in terms of understanding our path, it's tremendously helpful to recognize and become clear about what are these unworldly feelings that arise in the course of our meditation, in the course of our lives, because it has tremendous implication for our practice. On some level, you all do recognize unworldly pleasant feelings as being a source of happiness in your lives, or you wouldn't be here. Right? If you were just looking for worldly pleasant feeling, would you come to the forest refuge? <laughs> I don't think so. You'd be at the beach, or you'd be <laughs> where sense pleasures abound. But we're all here. so there's some big part of our minds which already understands, oh, yeah, there's another kind of happiness. There's another kind of pleasant feeling different than that that comes from sense pleasures. So already, we are attuned somewhat to these unworldly pleasant feelings. But still, we might have some doubt You know, at different times, is this really going to be, you know, the condition for my happiness if I give up, you know, attachment to sense pleasures? So the Buddha addressed this directly. He said, Now you might think, (laughs) I love that line, (laughs) you might think that perhaps these defiling mental states of attachment, aversion, delusion, might disappear, and you might still be unhappy. How could I be happy without desire? So we might think, these states might, these states might disappear, and we think we might still be unhappy. That is not how it should be regarded. If defiling states, greed, hatred, and delusion disappear, nothing but happiness and delight remain. It's the defilements of mind that are the cause of suffering and the absence of those defilements that bring happiness. So when we understand this, we no longer are deluded into placing our hopes for happiness in worldly pleasant feelings. Because they just condition more desire, more attachment, more defilement. Okay, we may not be yet fully enlightened, possibly not. But all along the path, we do experience many times of non-sensual joy, of unworldly pleasant feelings. And I want to point a few of them out so you can begin to recognize that unique kind of pleasure and happiness that comes as we practice. We experience non-worldly pleasant feelings in every moment of generosity. Generosity is an act of renunciation. We're we're giving something up for someone else. We experience the non-worldly pleasant feeling when the mind is free of the stinginess, free of the grasping, free of the holding on, every time we're generous. So just think of times when you were generous out of love, out of compassion, out of gratitude, out of respect. It's a very pleasant feeling. You know, we feel happy, we feel joyous in those moments of generosity. And it's a very accessible gateway to happiness. Practicing generosity, it's why the Buddha often began all of his progressive teachings with teachings on generosity because it's such an easy way to connect with these unworldly pleasant feelings that bring a genuine sense of happiness in our lives. It's a very good practice to undertake and just as an example, it's a practice that I've really worked with over many years and one little way of practicing it. And it's been been very interesting for me to watch my mind in doing this. I've undertaken the practice, as best I can, of when I have the thought to give something to do it, not to second guess myself. Because very often we have a generous thought, oh, yeah, Give that to somebody or it'll do something for that person. And then we have all kinds of second thoughts. Oh, that's too much, or I really want it, or whatever. You know, we second guess ourselves and often we just let the thought of generosity pass by. So the practice of actually acting on it, whenever the thought comes, has been very powerful. And sometimes it's just little things, and sometimes it's been really big things. And never have I regretted. You, know, you might think, "Oh, then, well, sorry, oh, I'm so sorry, I gave that." <laughs> it's not like that, because the feeling of generosity is this unworldly, pleasant feeling. It makes us feel good, as well as, of course, making the other person feel good. So it's a wonderful practice to attune ourselves to this quality of mind of what un of what unworldly pleasant feeling is about, we feel non-sensual joy in the practice of the Brahma Viharas. You know, we're practicing metta or compassion or mudita, you know, equanimity, there's just that simple warm-hearted connection that's not dependent on sense contact. It's an unworldly pleasant feeling. There's one expression of this, and of course there are many. But the the Zen poet and hermit and monk, you know, a wonderful, wonderful figure. One of, in one of his poems, he wrote, "Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world." because you know, just you can just feel kind of the love and compassion that he had, you know, expressing it in that way. That's a happiness, that's a joy that's not dependent on sense pleasure, on sense contact. It's an unworldly pleasant feeling. You know, and sometimes we see this quality, this, this really beautiful quality of humanity emerge in times of great suffering. You know, sometimes when there are these great natural disasters or, or man-made disasters, you know, like the Boston Marathon bombing or when this, you know, something terrible happens. And then there's an outpouring of support and generosity and love. And this is coming from people not expecting anything in return. You know, it's not, it's, and it's not based on any particular sense pleasure. It's coming from a non-worldly and unworldly feeling of love, of connectedness, of compassion. So we know this. We can, we can relate to this. We feel a non-sensual joy in the following of the precepts, you where know, we're, we're renouncing harmful actions. So again, remember, unworldly feelings are based on renunciation. So the renunciation of harmful actions. There's a joy that comes, it's the joy of non remorse, you know, of non regret when our minds are just clear. And we all know from our practice, having in the course of our lives done our fair share of unskillful actions, you know, and how often they'll come to mind in the practice, and they are a cause of regret, you know, or remorse. So when we are committed to the precepts, even having done, as we all have, various unskillful actions, once we are recommitted to non-harming, there is a wonderful, unworldly, pleasant feeling of ease, of heart. There's the unworldly, pleasant feeling of just the simplicity of being on retreat. I mean, for most of us, our lives are so complex and so busy, and there's so much going on. I mean, I'm sure you share this, but I know when I go on retreat, and that first moment of just closing the door behind me and entering into a place of silence, It's blissful. Whew. Can just put everything down. You know. In contrast, sometimes when I'm meditating at home, you know, I might be sitting up in my study and and it could be dark, but there's the the little lights on the computer and the surge protector and the printer and the router and the this and the that. It's like general headquarters for my life. You know, and it's just a reminder of how busy and connected, and so appreciating the unworldly pleasant feeling of simplicity, of the renunciation that comes from being in a situation like this, we experience unworldly pleasant feeling in states of concentration, where the mind is secluded from unwholesome states. As you know, when we first come on retreat or just getting started, our minds are often restless and agitated in their reactivity to worldly feelings. Oh, pleasant I like, unpleasant I don't like. You know, and so there's a lot of agitation in the mind. But as the mind settles and gets more concentrated, less reactive, it becomes secluded from those unwholesome states. And we experience an unworldly pleasant feeling of composure, of stillness. This kind of happiness is much greater and much more fulfilling than any kind of worldly happiness we might experience. Deepama once sat in an absorbed state for three days and said the Buddha could stay in that state for seven days. So just think for a moment, what sense pleasure could you enjoy for three days straight? Could you eat for three days straight? Or listen to music for three days straight? Or indulge your sexual fantasies for three days? (laughs) and Be exhausted. (laughs) And we would take refuge at last in what Munindra used to call the worldlings' highest pleasure, sleep. (laughs) Because sense pleasures don't have that power. These unworldly pleasant feelings born of seclusion, born of renunciation, there is a purity to them. They are divorced from unwholesome states of mind. So in just the examples that I've given, and I'll just give one or two more, these are all things we've touched. We may not be sitting in samadhi for three days in a row, but we've all touched you know, the, the happiness of generosity and of the non-harming of the precept and of simplicity and of some degree of concentration. You know, so we all have an understanding and a taste of what these unworldly pleasant feelings are about it's important to see the difference between them and the worldly pleasant ones. And this is something we don't generally do. We generally don't make that discernment. There's the pleasant, worldly feelings of insight, of understanding. If the pleasure and joy experienced in Vipassana happiness which is complete with the seven factors of awakening, be divided into 256 parts. (laughs) I have no idea where 256 came from. But if Vipassana happiness were divided into 256 parts, one single part of that joy and pleasure, one single part of the joy and pleasure, that Vipassana happiness, exceeds the worldly joys and pleasures of kings among humans, devas and brahmas. So great is the joy and pleasure inherent in these factors of awakening. And so we want to remind ourselves of this and also to pay attention to it. Because it's just so easy to get caught up in the course of our practice and overemphasize the struggles that we have, or the worldly unpleasant feelings, you know, and the dukkha that comes both from the feeling and our reaction to them, that we just often miss the more subtle, but also more profound aspect of these unworldly feelings. And that's why I'm giving such emphasis on it tonight, so we can begin to. Recognize them and open to them and appreciate them, because they are, the, they are the source of a genuine joy and happiness in the way we live. Okay, It's also important to look at the unworldly, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. Right? Unworldly doesn't mean only pleasant. There can be unworldly, unpleasant feelings. And you're familiar with this often in stages of meditation. You know, sometimes just at different times when we're seeing impermanence from a particular perspective and we're seeing the continual dissolution of things and there's no place to take a stand and we're just tuning into the insecurity of phenomena. There are times when that can become fearful and we can feel a lot of misery or despair in seeing that. At those times, enlightenment may really seem very far away. It feels like St. John of the Cross called Dark Night of the Soul. Or there are stages of insight where because of the particular stage we're in, unpleasant physical sensations become predominant. It's not for any other reason. It's just that in that stage of insight, that's what happens. So this is an unworldly, unpleasant feeling. But these feelings, these unpleasant feelings, unworldly ones, play a critical role in our path of awakening. So again, it's important to understand them. The unworldly, unpleasant feeling Rather than conditioning aversion, they lead to disenchantment and disillusion. Disillusionment. And something we read in the text a lot, being disenchanted, we become dispassionate. And through dispassion, the mind is liberated. Okay, so it's the unpleasant, unworldly feelings that come in the course of practice, they're not conditioning aversion, they're conditioning disenchantment. And that disenchantment in the mind, that disillusionment in in the mind, leads to dispassion. And it's dispassion which leads to awakening. But one of the problems for us, just in listening to this, the words in English... You know, disenchanted, disillusioned, dispassionate—these words in English don't sound that appealing to us. You know, so oh, that person's really disillusioned. You know, we tend to think of a little depressed, and but when we look at the actual meaning of the words, it's really quite different. Being disenchanted means waking up from the spell of enchantment. So we wake up into a fuller reality. You know, we see this in all of, a lot of the great fairy tales and myths. You know, the, somebody gets you know the kiss from the good fairy or whoever it is, and you know the person wakes up from the slumber of, of enchantment. It's Very easy to see this process of disenchantment work in our practice. Just watch those times when the mind is caught up in some desire, in some wanting. It might be for some little thing. It might be a full-blown obsession. But just pay attention to the next time the mind is caught by wanting. Notice the feeling of it. Really experience what it's like to be caught up in the wanting mind, in the in the mind filled with desire, and we can feel the pleasant worldly feeling of it. it. It might have a pleasant, a worldly pleasant aspect to it. You know, we want something desirable, we want something pleasurable, and kind of energizes us. Maybe it's you know longing to be with somebody or wanting a favorite food or whatever. But then, if you can. Notice that moment when the wanting disappears, when the desire passes. And it always does. Has anybody had a desire that didn't eventually pass? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever has the nature to arise will pass away, eventually. (laughs) If you notice that moment of going from being caught in the wanting to the end of wanting, the end of desire, that's the experience of going from enchantment to disenchantment. It's as if we wake up, we're let out of the grip of something, and we experience the unworldly pleasant feeling of the ease of not wanting. Does this seem clear? I mean, it's it's, it's so much a part of my experience. Because the wanting, just to see over and over again how seductive it is, you know, how those worldly, pleasant feelings, they just seduce us again and again and again. We, get, we become enchanted by them. But if we're paying attention to that moment when we come out of it, whew, as pleasant as it might have been in its own way, it's much more pleasurable To be disenchanted, right? And to come out and just be resting in a place of ease, of openness, of spaciousness. So we're experiencing then through the disenchantment the unworldly pleasant feeling of that. Okay, unworldly neutral feelings, we experience that a lot when we're in a state of equanimity. So rather than spacing out, as with worldly neutral feelings, with the unworldly neutral feelings that is based on renunciation, the mind comes to a place of tremendous equanimity, impartiality, and there's there's a tremendous purity of the mind at that time. So how do we practice being mindful of all these different kinds of feelings? The Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta gave really specific instructions. And it's it's really just a summary of what I've been saying. When feeling a worldly pleasant feeling, one knows I feel a worldly pleasant feeling. When feeling an unworldly pleasant feeling, one knows I feel an unworldly pleasant feeling. The same with worldly unpleasant, unworldly unpleasant worldly-neutral, unworldly-neutral feelings. So, if you've connected with some sense of the meaning of this distinction, just, just investigate a little bit, just explore, pay attention to the different kinds of feelings that come up in the course of a day based on whether... The feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, is coming from a sense contact or coming from renunciation. The caution here is not to make this too complicated, because it would be very easy, and I could easily imagine this happening, of spending an hour trying to figure out, is this pleasant or is it neutral? Is this worldly or is this unworldly? So be watchful of that. You you don't want to make this too complex, too confusing. Rather, just use this as a general framework of understanding, the second foundation of mindfulness. And begin to notice the difference in your experience of sense pleasures and the experience of what we could call dharma pleasures. The feelings are involved with both. But just see if you can begin to distinguish the difference in your experience between the worldly sense pleasures and what are called the unworldly or spiritual dharma pleasures. Because the more clearly we can see the difference, that's when we can begin to make wiser choices in our lives and it becomes much clearer what our aspirations actually are so i think i'll just close with just a few verses from the texts just as many diverse winds blow back and forth across the sky easterly ones easterly winds and westerly ones northerly winds and southerly ones, dusty winds and dustless winds, sometimes cold, sometimes hot, those that are strong and others mild, winds of many kinds that blow. So in this very body here, various kinds of feelings arise, pleasant ones and painful ones, and those neither painful nor pleasant. But when a bhikkhu who is ardent does not neglect clear comprehension, then that wise one fully understands feelings in their entirety." This is really exploring feelings in their entirety. The worldly ones, conditioning desire, aversion, delusion. The unworldly ones, leading to dispassion, leading to awakening. But when a bhikkhu who is ardent does not neglect clear comprehension, then that wise one fully understands feelings in their entirety. Having fully understood feelings, one is taintless in this very life. Standing in the Dhamma, gone beyond birth and death, the knowledge master cannot be reckoned. So There's something here to explore. But do it if you can, just from a place of interest, you know, without, without obsessing about it and without letting the mind get confused by it all but just beginning to sort out this very important distinction and see the effect of that in your practice and in your lives.
0: Thanks everybody for listening to Joseph Goldstein's Insight Hour. We appreciate your support and ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash joseph and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which MindPod and Joseph will receive a small percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon. Thank you.